The official Aston Villa Supporters Trust. Star guests, players, famous fans. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here's Johnny Gould. We're very proud at the Supporters Trust to have among our patrons one of the most authentic post-war voices to emerge from Birmingham. Benjamin Zephaniah was born and raised in Hansworth, which he once called the Jamaican capital of Europe. I went to school in Hansworth and we talk about the enormous contribution there, plus the surrounding areas of Lazelles, Aston and Duddeston Manor in the sporting and cultural life of our country. Benjamin writes that his poetry is strongly influenced by the music and poetry of Jamaica and what he calls street politics. His first performance was in the church when he was 11 and by the age of 15 his poetry was already known among Hansworth's Afro-Caribbean and Asian communities. He calls himself a revolutionary in our podcast but perhaps a better description might be that he prays and wishes to contribute to a better world and society. He has some very rich memories of Aston Villa. He walked into games with Chico Hamilton before he got autographs. He ended up in the back of Doug Ellis's famous Rolls-Royce and how the club played a huge part in the rehabilitation from the mourning process of a close family member. I want to thank Benjamin for an hour of his time in this captivating interview, which turned out to be such a rich conversation. It's just a fiver to join the Aston Villa Supporters Trust and even cheaper if you join over a lifetime. Join today and help us build a community in the name of our great club at villatrust.org.uk or follow us at villa underscore trust on Twitter. And they gave me those tickets that may not consider just by um, the BBC box, basically. What's his name? The guy that does all the, the Leicester guy, or the guy that does Walker's Chris now, wasn't that? Oh, Gary Lineker. Yeah, Lineker. Yes, yeah. you're the that. first person ever to forget his name. <laughs> oh, I'm terrible with names. And then I took a friend of mine who was a Manchester United supporter. And when you sit there, you're not allowed to wear colours. Um, and the the West Brom game was such a good game. I just thought we picked up a bit, you know. And then we just got slaughtered. Oh. It was so bad. But the other thing I remember about that game was, and this is a few people have said this to me who are not Villa fans. It's like, Villa fans are loud. You know, it's like, he stood there and he's, he's a, he's, he was neutral because, like I said, he's a Manchester United supporter. And he was like, wow, listen to the Villa fans. They're losing and they're still out singing Arsenal. <laughs> yeah. That's so nice. Loud and proud. And... What's been fantastic, particularly over the last decade, is the amount of times that Aston Villa have been at Wembley. We've seen our fair share of heartache, but there have been some very high moments. Of course, Derby County in the playoffs, the last but one season, was the highlight. And then perhaps we look to the semi-final against Liverpool, which defied everything in our sort of decade of slump, didn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's 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 like uh, it's a bit like Martin Luther King. We go to the mountain. <laughs> we just haven't got up, you know. <laughs> just just haven't quite got to the promised land. I didn't know Martin Luther King was an Aston Villa fan. That that is news. <laughs> uh, that is great news, Benjamin. It's an absolute pleasure to uh, to oh. welcome you to the Supporters Trust podcast. When we talk about famous Aston Villa supporters, your name is one of the first half dozen that always springs to mind. And uh, I think 
to have forged a, such a long career as a poet as well marks you out as a bit of an institution in this country. You know, you, you know how many poets have actually made it to become such, such household names? You know, you think of people like Pam Ayres, <laughs> you know, she's been and gone. You think of people like John Cooper Clarke, who's a little bit subversive. And you think of maybe people like Sir John Betjeman. Um, but, but there's something about your poetry. Uh, Roger McGough's another one, isn't he? The guy from Liverpool. Mm. Um, so, so what is it? What is it about uh, the sort of the, the, the love that people have for poets in this country? It's an unusual art. Well, I think it's um, first of all, poets, you know, good poets should speak a language of the common people. And a lot of people think the opposite. A lot of people think, oh, poets are very hairy fairy. I can't understand this complex language. But poets that have real longevity speak the poet the, the, the language of normal people. And sometimes that may not seem so, but you must understand that when Shakespeare was writing, Shakespeare's accent was like a, a, like a, like a bit of a Brummie accent. It was a yeah. Newland accent, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, of the day. You know, you wouldn't have to concentrate to understand what Shakespeare was saying when he was writing. Um, it's just that the language has changed. It's interesting when people talk about Peaky Blinders and they say, well, the accent is not quite right there. I go, what was the accent like then in Birmingham? It was highly influenced by Irish, you know? And so it was, an Irish wouldn't have called it Irish. You know, it was it was kind of a hybrid. Um, so I think that's one thing. We, we sound like the common people, or a good poet should sound like the common people. And, um, and with me, it's interesting, I mean, out of all those poets you mentioned, I'm probably the most political. And not just the most political, the, the most kind of, dare I say, revolutionary. Um, you know, I am at heart a revolutionary. I, I am an anarchist, you know? I mean, it, it's, and I've never backed away, shied away from that. You know, I, I've never shied away from saying I, I, I don't like big institutions. I, I, I'm not going to say I hate because I've got friends who are politicians, but I am sus very suspicious of all governments, left, right and centre, um, because I think power corrupts and it corrupts absolutely. But I know that when people hear me speak, they don't have to agree with everything I say, but they know there's a kind of level of honesty. It's just this kid from Maston who's just speaking his truth. And, um, and when I go on question time and things like that, and I think that makes a difference to my status in the country. I'm not just a poet that sits down and writes poems in my attics and just publishes them every now and again, and then just does the media circus. You see me on Question Time, you see me on political debate, you see me on cultural debate, you see me commenting on things. When I do that, people always say, if there's six politicians, Benjamin, you stood out because you weren't towing a political line, you know? And I, I remember the very first time I did Question Time, I did it with Robin Cook. I know I knew Robin Cook and I knew his you know, I knew his family. And we had a big disagreement over the Gulf War. And then we came the, the, the cameras were turned off and we, we were walking away and he put his arm around me and he went, You know you're right, Benjamin. And I said, How can you say that? And then somebody said to me at the time, Dimbleby said, um, you have to understand, Benjamin, when they are on camera, they told the party line. 
you know, and, and learn, yeah, that's what they do. Well, I've just got to speak my own truth. I'm not representing anybody. I'm just speaking my truth. And if people identify with it, they identify with it. And the amount of times I meet people that say, well, I, you know, I disagree with you on this, but I love the honesty you put into it. And it's, at least it's you talking and not, you know, the party machine. Benjamin, someone from perhaps the opposite end of the political spectrum said on a podcast recently that it was up to writers and comedians to be the authentic voice of our society because people who are engaged with companies and public sector organisations have to sort of tow uh, a party line, a corporate yes. line, as we just mentioned with Robert Robin Cook. And I'm talking about Douglas Murray. Now, you may not agree with him on much, but mm -hmm. so I'm sure you see a sympathy uh, in the way that he writes yes. from his heart. And the same yes. for you. You don't represent anyone but yourself. Yeah. And hopefully, uh, from your point of view, you're getting over a point yeah. because you are free to do that. Yeah, you know, and when I listen to Douglas, I, I agree with you. It's him speaking. It's not, uh, you know, a, a big organisation. Um, and I understand why he speaks the way he does. He has a particular type of education. He has a particular take on life. You know, my education is very different to that. You know, literally, if you go to the villa ground and you walk up Fenton Road, you see that's where I'm born. That's where I lived. You know, um, when I when you went out to my back garden and you went to the end of the garden, you went over the fence, you went into Ozzy Osbourne's garden. You know. Is that Lodge Road? Yes. Yeah. Well, I was in the back of Lodge Road. Yeah. So, um, you know, so that's that's where my politics comes from, you know. Um, and yeah, sometimes I see people that I disagree with. But I always say that if I have an argument with somebody, I always try and understand their point of view and understand why they come to that position. But yeah, poets and comedians and sometimes even painters and cartoonists um, speak their truths. And most of the time, politicians don't. I mean, sometimes I'm really frustrated when I've seen politicians, sometimes that I know that are not speaking the truth or are not answering the question. I mean, when somebody asks me a question in an interview, it doesn't matter who's interviewing me, I really try and answer the question as best as I can, as honest as I can. When I see somebody that's, just, that, that, that's claiming, I'm not just claiming, I know they've got a higher education than me, they've been educated at Eton, and they're not answering the question, I said, I would be kicked out of the class for that. If <laughs> you was at school, the teacher would say, come on, answer the question. Um, so yeah, we, we, we just have to be honest as, as we can and, and comedians, I guess, are honest in a very different way, but um, certainly poets, we just have to be true to ourselves. So obviously brought up within the shadows of Aston Villa Football Club and of course the shadows have got bigger as the stadium has yeah. got bigger, but the area immediately around Aston has looked the same for about a hundred years. And there's something very beautiful, whichever way you walk to Villa Park, be it from, for example, Witten Station, or you walk from the Aston Expressway past Aston Hall on the left, that Aston Hall hill leading round to the big stanchion now, which goes over, over the road, 
for the. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm glad the buses fit underneath. Um, but 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 there's something um, of the Victorian sort of rural nature of how the area looked before you know it was all built up and became industrial. I mean, that was the edge of industrial Birmingham, just as the revolution. Uh, in 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 our industry started in the 1860s and 70s. Well, yeah, I'm not I'm not I'm not very good at um, remembering dates and stuff like that. But I've seen um, illustrations of that area when Aston Hall was there, and it was all just land. <laughs> I can remember I can remember, and you know, and it was owned by oh, I forgot his name now, the person that lived in Aston Hall. Um, Sorry, his name. Let's just say Lord Aston. <laughs> but um, yeah, they owned all that land there. Now, as a kid, I remember when the Aston Expressway was being built. Yes. And I used to play. We used to hang up there and stuff like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's, there's the, the houses, and and I'm so glad that when they refurbished, if that's the right word, Aston Aston uh, Villa Park. Um, they kept it in that same style, even though, you know, they did that bit over the road. Which is, yeah, yeah. Which is, uh, which is odd. It's, it's, it's nice, though. I think it's, 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 it's... Yeah, it's a nice touch. It just makes it dif uh, different. But they kept that kind of look. Um, I think the problem is... And I don't know if this is disagreeing with you or just, just making a comment, but the look is the same as when I was growing up in the, in the 60s and 70s. Um, but when I was growing up, it was... When we talked about multiculturalism there, it was poorer, mainly Irish families. Yeah. Some Greek Cypriots, I remember. I think it was because of the war with Cyprus and, and, and with, with Turkey at the time. They used to own the chip shops and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I remember the gypsies, and some of the locals didn't least like the gypsies when they came to town. But I loved them because they were slightly rough and ready, and you know, they read poems to each other around the campfire and stuff like that. So I used to love going and playing with the gypsies. And then they're just the start of the black community, just the start of it. I remember. Yeah. You know, and then you know, as I was growing up, it was the Asian community that were moving in. Yeah. You know. First of all, Indians and um, Kenyan refugee Indians, and then later on, Bengalis. Yes. Now it's very Bengali and Pakistani. Yes. And the thing that I think is a little bit of a challenge, and I think we have to be careful if we romanticize it too much, is that it's still relatively poor. Yes, it is. You know? Um, great communities that live there, great people, when you get to know them, I mean, I've been working with Aston Hall. I did some work with Aston Hall a few years ago about, you know, again, how to connect the local community with the hall because they just weren't using it. It was this yeah. like, white elephant just there. And I mean, I loved Aston Hall. As a, as a kid, I was like, wow, we've got a stately hall. I thought like, we had a stately <laughs> hall, you know what I mean? I used to climb under roofs. I think I snugged my first girls there, you know? <laughs> no wonder you want to use it more, Benjamin. <laughs> I remember when I was really small, there was a guy when you walked into the, the double doors, there was a guy there and um, he used to call us in. And then when we were in, 
the, the, these laughs used to come out. What he did basically was he stuck a machine up the chimneys and used to get oh, 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 oh. we go there's a ghost and then we'd run out. I mean, he was he was scared the living daylights out of us basically. Um, and um, and yeah, so we were so proud that we had you know our own stately home. Um, but yeah, the communities there have, have always been uh, rather poor. Yeah. And it's how do you regenerate? How do you yeah. bring money to that place and keep yeah. its character? You know, I, it doesn't matter where I go in the world. When I come off the over the Aston Expressway, when I can just see the top of the church, Aston Hall, and the, and the Villa lights, there's something that goes. I'm home. Just you know, I'm home. And most of my family don't live in Aston or Hansworth anymore. Um, they've moved out. My mum's in Hall Green. I'm a, but I still gravitate. And I could come off at other end parts of Birmingham, but I always come out at Aston. Yeah, I understand that completely. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up, I remember the first part of the Gravelly Hill ramp being built. Right. of Erdington and no road above it, because I think we're a similar age. Right. Because I started life in Sutton Coldfield, just a couple of roads down. And my grandfather's shop was on was on the Litchfield Road next to Lover's Walk, right by Aston Station. Right. Which is now um, a church. It's um, it, it's it's uh, a Christian church. Um I came out of Villa Park on our last home game of the season, I think in 2015, and we'd beaten Hull City to ensure that we'd stayed up yet again mm. before eventually getting relegated a couple of years on. Mm. And I took the walk up the Aston Hall Hill. Mm. And when you talk about regeneration, the regeneration starts with the people because, of course, the game was in the second week of May. So the sun was still in the sky and there were kids in whites, Bengali or Pakistani kids playing cricket in a way that Bengalis and Pakistanis play cricket, okay? It is with, you know, full pelt and full passion, okay? So everyone's walking out of Villa Park from this 150 year old tradition and there are Bengalis and Pakistanis who've maybe, you know, born, their parents born in this country too, playing cricket under the shadows of Villa Park. And, you know, there's something organic about regeneration, isn't there? Because, you know, those guys may not have been uh, the richest guys in the world, but they were playing cricket to a level where maybe one or two of them could become professional, could say, hey, you know, I did grow up in Aston. Uh, this is the place it is. It was an extraordinary melting pot. And uh, like, like you, you know, you, you, you get some 70s pride from where you are, just as they will from their 2010 pride uh, in, in playing cricket while thousands of people came out of Villa, a game which perhaps they weren't acquainted with. Well, I absolutely agree with you. But let me tell you something. I was just talking to John Robb. You know John Robb? Yeah, I, yes, well, I know the name. I don't know him, yeah. Right, you know, punk kind of vegan journalist commentator. And um, I just did an interview with him, and he said, what are you doing now? And I said, I'm doing an interview with you. And I was just talking about him with the early, because he supports Blackpool. Right. Um, 
And um, let me just, one minute, I'm just going to show you something. I'll show you this because I'm very near to it, right? Yes. This is a picture of me and Doug Ellis. Ah, oh, lovely. Right. Now, this is not long before he passed away. Yeah. Right. Now, exactly where you, I mean this sincerely, exactly where you saw those Bengali Pakistani kids playing cricket, we used to play football. And Doug, there's a couple of other people used to work with, um, they used to come and watch us play. Back in those days, you know, I, I remember going to Villa matches and a half to a two thirds of the players, I would know their brothers or sisters or cousins or because, yeah. you know, they came yeah. from the local academy, as it's called now, and they were locals, yeah. you know what I mean? And only one or two players were brought in, but most of the players were local. And this is something Doggy was really keen on back in the yeah. day. Yeah. But I remember he used to come and he used to say, hey, you, come on, because I was quite a good footballer, so come for trials at, 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 at Villa. And I used to joke with him and say, when you have girls playing, yeah, I'll, I'll come. Or I used to sit in his Rolls Royce, IV1, and I used to go, <laughs> when I was really small, and he used to tell me off. He said, a Rolls Royce is never that loud. Because <laughs> I used to race it like a racing car. One day I got in it, and I hid behind the back seat, and he drove into town, and then I popped up, and he went, you little brat, and he brought me back to my mum. <laughs> Not a lot of people know this. I have spoken about it before, but he even bailed me out to the police station once. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I've got a picture of me and him, which is at my mum's actually. It's like this. We're almost in the same position. But he must be in his 30s and I'm 10 or something. Right. It's almost exactly the same pose. Yeah. It's, yeah. You know? um, and um, that's how close we were. Yeah. I can remember um, when we really, like I said about we had our own stately home, we really felt we were part of the club villa. Yeah. If you look locally, as, as kids, our first jobs were looking after cars. Yeah. Mind your car, please, sir. Mind your car, please, sir. And then we'd sneak in at half time to catch the last half. Then we'd run back to the cars, kind of stuff. <laughs> um, um, so... My memories of Villa as a kid is a real, it was really part of the community. Yeah. Let's see football as this big business that it was now. I remember one day walking to the game with Chico Hamilton. Do you remember oh, really? Chico? Yeah, walking. <laughs> it, it's, I, I, I don't know what happened, but we were walking together and he literally went into the players' entrance and we said goodbye. You know what I mean? Shook his hands and everything. I didn't even collect autographs then. Um, but at the end of every game, we would walk on. I remember I walked to the game with Chico Hamilton. He went in. We went in. And we actually sneaked in. We didn't even pay. And, um, and then we won. I think we were playing West Ham and we were really kids. And I remember running on the pitch, putting my arm around Chico, Ham Chico Hamilton. And saying, Chico, man, I want to be like you when I grow up. And he says, like, you're going to start playing football in Avenue. So, like, <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, I have such great memories of that. And I have such great memories of uh, Doug. And Doug was like a father to me. 
you know, I, I mean, he never took me in his house. I mean, I've, I've been to his house. That's me. And, that's I'm in his house there. Even in his house, you can see the furniture is all claret and blue. <laughs> A man of impeccable taste. Yeah. Um, but this is but, this is all lovely. And um, Benjamin, I, you know, I recognise what you're saying. Um, I think maybe I'm a. A, a little bit younger than you. So um, when we were league champions in 81 and mm. European champions in 82, mm. I was 14 and 15. Right. I couldn't imagine a more urgent excitement than that was. Yeah. And I started supporting Villa in 76. So I thought automatically things just got better and better. <laughs> um, you know, from the culmination of you know watching us finish fourth in 77 and winning the League Cup, we had a couple of disappointing seasons finishing eighth twice. I thought, oh, no, what's this about? And then, of course, we pop up and win the league. Thanks very much. Um, and, um, you know, obviously, we know life's not as, quick, as sweet as that. But you're right. What you said about Aston and Duddiston is so interesting. What is it about what happened in the early 70s and 80s that produced such an amazing crop of West Indian talent? They're actually engaged with Aston Villa. And I'm thinking of Ivor Linton, Noel Blake. Mm. Um, I'm thinking of, you know, Mark Walters, who was like a Brazilian. The way he played was beautiful. Mm. And, of course, Tony Daly, who I had the fortune of interviewing at the AGM, the Villa Trust AGM, right. who spoke with a great affection, uh, um, um, a cultural relationship with Villa, because mm. and, and I've just forgotten Darius Vassell while we're at it. And, um, you know, and, and, what, and of course, they didn't play football, but they came out of Duddeston Manor, musical youth. Yeah. What, is it, what is it about that concentration of sporting and musical talent that came from that part of Birmingham? Um, I think there are many things that work here. I think one of the most important things and you've heard me say this before and I don't really want to go on about race but it's you know it's like we're doing something to really our parents told us this to really be recognized to really be acknowledged we got to work twice as hard as a white guy we got to be twice as good as the white guy if you're doing music, we've got to make sure we're doing the best music. If you're doing sport, we've got to be right up there. And those happened to be two things that we couldn't excel in. It was very difficult to be a black architect in those days. Right. It was very difficult to be a, you know, a black prime minister. <laughs> it was difficult to be. A, but in sport and music, we were allowed to shine if we could prove ourselves. And I think that may have something to do with it. Um, you know, I, one of my frustrations sometimes, and it's changing now, was when I'm touring, doing my poetry, and sometimes I do a lot of work for an organisation called the British Council, and I'm just promoting British culture all over the world. And sometimes, you know, these people are flying me first class and business class. And people will just come up to me, and I'm talking about people who don't know me now, and they go, oh, you, you must be a musician or a sports person. And I kind of hate it because I think, you know, that's all you're limiting me to. Right. And then I have to say, well, no, I'm a writer and I'm an intellectual and, you know, and, and, and I mean, 
I am a musician uh, professionally as well. I do the music and I love my sports. But I just don't want to be pigeonholed in yeah. that thing, you know? Yeah. And, and I've had people stand in front of me and go, now, who do you play for? Because I want to let people know that we can be writers. We can be architects. Yeah. You know? I get that. People pigeonhole you, you know? I mean, yes. um, being being the fat Jewish bloke that I am, I would love people to turn around to me and say, who do you play for? I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's um, another thing. But, you know, it's interesting. It's interesting that... Um, it's, it's funny. I mean, we, we were talking about the 70s and 80s the other day and with, with a friend, and he was talking about being a working class white kid, how he used to get stopped by the police and yes. breathalyzed all the time. Yeah. Now, I've been stopped by the police a lot. I have never been breathalyzed in my life. I've never had any talk about drink, but I've had a police officer open the door and the first thing he said is, right, where is the drugs, man? Right. And again, I don't smoke, you know, I don't, I don't take, I, I, I'm reluctant to take a, 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 a uh, uh, paracetamol, you know what I mean? Um, but the stereotype, I mean, I've been standing at train stations and people come up to me, side up to me, go, you got a smoke, man? Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. There was a story, wasn't there, a few years ago where Billy Ocean, who is a little bit more grey than you, yeah. has the dreads yeah. and uh, got stopped for a similar reason in Ladbroke Grove. And then he said, hang on a moment, I'm Billy, Billy Ocean, Caribbean queen. Yeah. We're sharing. And I think the police backed off and said, oh, terribly sorry, sir. Terribly, terribly sorry, Mr. Ocean. Do carry on. Yeah. <laughs> I've had a similar experience. I had a similar experience in my car not so long ago. Um, right. Where one police officer was being a bit naughty to me and the other police officer said, oh, it's the poet. Hey. And then he was like, can we have your autograph? This reminds me of the Smiley Culture song, Police Officer, yeah. which is exactly that. That's the chorus line yeah, about yeah. being stopped by the police. Don't you know my name? I'm Smiley Culture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Where he's, he's pretending to be a Cockney, you know, he's doing the Cockney thing, um, being the Cockney police officer. Whilst, um, mm. whilst oh, I think it's Cockney the word, translation. Cockney, Cockney translating. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, I, I've got a feeling that you know, it's like, especially back in those days. Because I, I remember going to football matches, and we were, when Villa played West Ham, right. and West Ham had Clyde Best, the only black player. Yeah, yeah. And I remember him so well. I remember touching him. I ran onto the pitch, and he wasn't on our side, but I still touched him because I just wanted to touch another black player <laughs> or a black player. I get that. And get and that. and he he wasn't even built like a footballer. He was he built like a builder. He was stuck. He was big. Yeah. Yeah. But I remember me and my brother going and watching him, and he wasn't on our side, but we'd look at him and we'd whisper, you know, we didn't want the Villa fans to hear, but look at that black guy. <laughs> <laughs> this is a wonderful conversation, Benjamin. I'm, I'm going to try and sort of get this onto Aston Villa now and talk about the most exciting moment you've experienced in your time watching Villa. Now, I didn't think football mattered to me as much as it did during the last 40 minutes of the Arsenal game, which we won 1-0, and the last 20 minutes of the West Ham game, I was clutching my stomach in agony, watching Bournemouth increase their lead at Everton, watching Watford score not once but twice in a game which I thought they'd lost at Arsenal, and thinking, oh, no. you know, And then Jack scores, and then they equalise with a sort of 
one of those sort of German World Cup semi-final over Paul Parker's shin kind of goal over Shilton. And my heart breaking and me sort of coming to terms with the idea that we'd be in the championship again. Mm. And then we're not. Yeah. Agony. So, I mean, that looms large in my mind. Uh, but I still remember, I still think if I could bottle it, the moment at Arsenal where we won the league despite losing. And of course, the Peter with goal in Rotterdam. Just, right. Nothing will ever top that. I don't know when my mum would be. You know, funny enough, the Rotterdam game is probably up there. Um, I don't know. I mean, this, when was it? Two weeks ago now? Is it, is it two weeks since we, since the, um, uh, Since we survived, yeah, it's a little bit less than that. A bit less than that, right? Okay. That was really weird for me because I think it's because I was on the internet watching the television, and I remember I got to a point where my heart was racing so much I just had to <laughs> chill out, you know. And <laughs> we're too old for this. Yeah, yeah. I think in terms of memory I, I think that's gonna go down and it's weird because it's not a game when we were there but i do think 2000 uh, 2020 for lots of reasons it's going to be such a memorable year yeah. you know yeah you're a bit younger than me and but i think in years to come you know if we live to be 90 and all that some kids are going to say to us, it's going to be, you know, it's like, where, where, what did you do during the war? It's like, what did you do in 2020? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. they're going to have a name for this year. We, we, we can't imagine right now. We've got to get yeah. past it, you know? Um, because there are so many things. But that frustration of it not just being the Villa game that we were relying on, but other things, oh. all these other factors, Oh. And having, you know, the computer to television, the computer to television, you know, phone calls. Oh. I remember just after it, the first thing I did was I um, sent a message to Nigel Kennedy. And um, if I had my phone, I'd say what it was, but it was something like, you know, you're feeling what I'm feeling, bro. You know what I mean? Exhausted. And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, at least we stayed up. And um, so that will um, certainly go down. Um, I do remember um, when we won the European Cup, I actually was doing a gig, you know, and somebody came and they they bloody came to me and they said, oh, Villa lost. Oh. Uh, no, they didn't. Hey. <laughs> and then addressed him, I think... I think if I'm right, there was a few punk poets until at the stockbroker. Do you remember him? Do you know him? I, I do remember him. Yeah, yeah, I think he was there at the time. Somebody came in and said, Villa lost Yeah, well, he's, he's fired. Um, <laughs> I, I remember, and obviously this will, never be, uh, this will never be on any tape anywhere, but I was a teenage contestant on Radio WM Sport um, <laughs> on that Saturday afternoon before the European Cup final, and we were at home to Everton, which was a game that we lost. And... Oh. Um, they only they didn't do commentary in those days. Um, and uh, Tim Russon said to me, so, Jonathan, which was my name in those days before I picked my own identity. So, Jonathan, do you think 
uh, we're going to win today against Everton. Uh, no, Tim, no, Tim, we'll lose. And what about Rotterdam? Will you win? Yes, we'll win 1-0, Tim. Um, so, yes, I was fully prepared. You was, right. Except, except for the bicycle kick by Karl-Heinz Rummenigge and Jimmy Rimmer's um, shoulder injury. Apart from that, I had it all covered. You had it all, right. <laughs> <laughs> but it was. It was, uh, it was a beautiful moment. And as I had the opportunity to say to Peter with, during those dark three years in the championship, and quite frankly, I was betting down for many years, Leeds mm-hmm. United or Nottingham Forest, Sheffield Wednesday years in the championship, I was betting down for that. We were very, very lucky to be in the Premier League. I said to Peter, when we're losing 3-0 in the rain at Brentford, which uh, I went to see Dean Smith Brentford quite a lot mm. in the championship, watching their fit side really, you know, turn us over, you know, season after season. Uh, you know, the the league championship of European Cup years, his goal and his performance, his professionalism, g- gives Villa fans of our vintage and older real 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 comfort yeah. that that, yeah. that we can be better, that the stadium does exist for a purpose in that grandeur, and that I feel sorry for kids under the age of 45 who. You know, who, who don't really have a sort of understanding of what is capable at Aston Villa. Yeah. I. It's funny because I think I'm going to tell you this story now. Because when you asked me about my great moments, I thought I wasn't going to tell you this because it was too personal. Right. And um, and I can't, and there's not much detail I can remember about it. It was about four years ago. I think we were playing Burnley. Burnley, they have Clarendon Blue, haven't they, as well? Is it Burnley that have Clarendon Blue? Yeah, Burnley. Yeah. Yeah. My brother, because we talk talk about football and the importance to us and everything, right? Yeah. My brother, my half-brother, is like a little bit older than me. So all those times he remembers, he remembers Doug Ellis. He really doesn't pay much attention to Villa now. He's in his work and whatever. He's one that one night one of his sons got stabbed. The other one died in a car crash, and the other one had his pelvis smashed and was blind in the eye. In one night. It's a long story, I won't go into the detail. He's a big strong man, he went into depression. He blamed himself for teaching his son to drive, which is which caused the crash and all that kind of stuff. He couldn't go to work. He works at Land Rover. He's in charge of a whole department. He, he, he kept breaking down for months, and every day he would go to the grave of his son because oh. he was guilty. And it's the other side of Birmingham, you know. He's living over by the Land Rover, and his son is buried somewhere like Smevik. Right. And. Um, and he would talk to me for hours and hours on the phone about um, about what's happening, you know, how his son and how badly he feels and this and that. And one day he was talking to me, and I remember as he was talking to me, I kind of looked at the thing and I thought he's been talking to me for two and a half hours. And I went, Trevor, let's go and watch the villa. And he goes. What are you talking about? I said, let's go and watch a game of football. Right. Why would I want to do that? I said, do you remember we used to do that before? You know, let's just go back to where we were raised and watch a game of football. 
and um, just to give you something else to do. He went quiet for a moment, then he went, oh, okay. I said, what time shall I come pick you up? He said, well, i got to go to the grave. i got to do this. I said, Trip, don't go to the grave. You've gone to that grave every day for the last six months or something it was. I said, if your son is watching you, he's not going to feel bad because you don't go to the grave for one day. Let's just say, whatever your belief is, your son is watching you. He's not going to feel my father is bad, you know, because you don't go to the grave. One day, just want you to relax, come and watch the villa. Again, he thought about it for a while, and then he went, okay. Um, so we met a couple of hours before the game. I don't drink, but we went for a drink together. You know, by the halt end with the step sign, I think, we kind of, um, we loitered around there, just talking to other fans and whatever. Um, Again, Nigel Kennedy was around with the game and a few other people, so we were talking. We went in. Unfortunately, we won 3-1. <laughs> I was thinking, I hope we don't lose. Because <laughs> that was just taking back into the first. And, and it was a great game as well. We played brilliantly. We were in the whole tent, which is how we always go to the whole tent. I don't think... I don't think I've ever watched another a game when I'm not in the hot end. Really? Yeah, I've always been in the hot end. I just love the hot end. Um, and um, and so we won and we came, we came out. We went and saw some friends afterwards, talked about the game and everything. And I, I'll never forget him. A couple of days later, he said to me, that's the best thing I've done for ages. You know, he, he just turned him around. You know, it just, after that, you know, he just, you know, he went to the gravestone every couple of days, you know, just eased himself back into work. And I said to him, you know, we got to go and watch another game. He we went and they watched another game afterwards. So, you know, I can actually say that Aston Villa brought my brother back from a very dark place. So, and it, it was the football, but it was also the memories. It was also seeing old friends, you know, um, people that we used to hang out with, we were kids, you know, and they're all kind of in their 50s and 60s now. And people coming up to me going, do you remember me? Do you remember me? It was all that kind of stuff. That's funny, yeah. You know, and, and that really helped him out. So that's when I say, you know, football is just it's more than a game. That's what it means to me, you know I mean? It means uh, family. Um, uh, I'm not going to go and get my photograph collection, but I was in Hong Kong. I was in Hong Kong uh, a while ago, and um, this man comes running to me, and he's got his two kids, and they've got their villa kits on. How funny! Yeah, you know I mean, because Benjamin, we love you, and we, you know we're villa fans, and and I just I took a photograph of his kids. It's, it's <laughs> um, lovely, and it is the you know the, the the further away, and there has been, as you hinted at right at the beginning of this interview, so much population movement and change. Yeah. There is a Brummy identity. There is a Villa identity that stays with you and it transcends class and colour. And I, I swear, you know, the friendships that I've made through the vessel of Aston Villa, and you talk mm. about how it changed your brother's mourning process. Mm. Um, you know, it is powerful. 
And, you know, when you say, I, I watched the games in the Holt, um, there was a there was an example of a game. I was in the North Stand. I'm not I'm not there very often, and I managed to get a ticket right at the top of the North Stand, which is approximately the highest point that there is at Villa Park, notwithstanding right. some of the back end of the Holt. Mm. And the wind blew a bit up there, mm. and I could see the trees rustling, mm. and I felt a spiritual goodness about the place that you don't get at other at other grounds there was something that lifted me at villa park and i just wonder whether you think that aston villa has been built on blessed ground there's something very blessed about the place don't hang up on me <laughs> well I'm not sure what was there before, but for me, it is special. I think I've, I've watched other grounds that have been refurbished and they kind of, they become these kind of big glass structures or, right. you know, yeah. some fancy architects has come in and feel has kept its character even when it's been kind of refurbished. You're right. And, and and it's been on the same spot as well. It's not like moving down the road or moving to a more upmarket area or something like that, you know. Yeah. It's kind of stayed there. Yeah. And there's something about the juxtaposition of Aston Hall as well and the yeah. graveyard and, you know. Um, yeah, it, it, it's... I, I mean, my missus is uh, not from England and she kind of looks at me when I come up to the Aston Expressway and, and I look and I see Aston Villa and I go, oh, I'm really low to your line. She just doesn't get it, you know what I mean? Yeah, but, you my, know, my, I, I know yeah, my some... missus also wasn't born here and does her best to imbibe the culture, but, you know, it's, she's not, you know, she, the, uh, she, she doesn't quite understand it. And, and, and why should she, you know? It's... Well, I have, I met a, a, a guy, um, from, um, uh, I think basically he's working, he used to work for, I think he told me he used to work for Manchester United and he was working for the FA and he went to China. Right. And his job in China was to try and get the Chinese people to have some connection with their clubs. Um, because a Chinese football fan will support, will support Shanghai one day and if they lose a couple of games, you'll go and support Beijing. Right. They'll think nothing of it. <laughs> You know, they don't have that loyalty, you know, like, right. until I die, you know, if, you, if if the team is relegated, you know, you stick with it and you hope for it to kind of rise up or whatever. Yeah. Um, they just slip around. And um, and he said, you know, they paid him a lot of money, I think, and he tried and tried in China and he couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. They don't have the history that we have. Yes. You know. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I tell you another funny joke as well. Well, funny joke, a funny story. I was in Hong Kong. I was going to work in China. Now, I was spending a long time in China now, quite a few months. I was in Hong Kong and I lost my wallet and all my money. And I was at HSBC Bank and I said, can you give me my credit card? Get me some new credit card. And they were like, no, you've got to go back to England to get them. Oh. Or we'll post them to your address in England and somebody can post them. And I went, well, no one's at home. So I said, look, you know, you call Hong Kong Shanghai Bank. Their advertising slogan at that time was like, um, 
uh, wherever you are, it's your local bank. So I said, come on, I'm in Hong Kong, I'm going to Shanghai, come on, <laughs> help me, you know? And they were like, no. And so I just felt, anyway, I leave Hong Kong, kind of penniless, but I know I've got work to do in, in Shanghai and places. And I go to this hotel in Shanghai, and I'm checking in, and you know nowadays you check in and they want your credit card, because they want yeah. to, yeah? So I said, I haven't got a credit card. So they said, can, we, can you leave us some cash? There's a tap on the shoulder, and I turn around, and it's Didier Drogba. <laughs> right. <laughs> and he says, okay, brother, I'll, I'll pay for you. I'll do this for you. Have fun. You know what I mean? He remembers me. He said, yeah, I remember seeing you on television, the poet, and you were support Villa. It's okay. That's you know? so funny. Right. But listen to this, right? Listen to this, it gets even weirder. <laughs> so he plays the deposit for me. He's going to get it back later. Um, he pays the deposit for me and I'm free to go. And he says, I'll come for a drink. And he takes me into a lounge. And it's just full of semi-retired, mainly European footballers. Right. You know, they go there. They go to China to... Um, yes. To earn £150,000 a week when they're 35. Yes, 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 yes. This room was full of them. And I was like, wow. And they, they, I, I don't, I can't, I'm not very good at remembering footballers' names, especially if they're not a you know, player. But, oh, there's so-and-so, there's so-and-so, there's so-and-so. There was even a couple of Brazilians there. Benjamin, it sounds like a dream. It doesn't quite sound like reality. Yeah, no, it's called the Westin Hotel. It's in Shanghai. Yeah, I, I believe you. And, and he was, and, and actually, Drogba was saying, you know, there's a lot of us here. And... And actually, they don't go out much, you know, they don't connect much with them. <clears throat> Excuse me. They're not really that interested in kind of Chinese life or anything like that. But they get paid so well. They're not at the top of their game. No. <clears throat> um, the Chinese clubs, they like a couple of foreign play uh, players, but they don't have a lot. They've got like an unspoken rule. And I think you can only have like three foreign players or something like that in your team. Yes. Which sometimes, this may be a bit politically incorrect, sometimes I wish we had some kind of rule like that. I think that's why we don't do very well as England. You know, because we're not... Brazil and all these other places, even when there's not a game coming, every now and again they call the squad together to play and they know each other and, you know, and, and, and they're, they're kind of... Uh, uh, their, their local teams have a lot of, you know, uh, what's the word, um, local players, I guess. You know, if you're in a Brazilian team, it's mainly Brazilians. There are a couple of foreign players, but it's mainly Brazilians. And I think, I'm not sure about European football, but I think the same applies to a lot of European teams. You know, they'll have some foreigners, but they won't be. I think they, they we field, well, not we, Arsenal fielded a team once and there was not one English player in there. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not even the coach. <laughs> No, <laughs> that's right. And uh, Arsene Wenger said, and, you know, this was uh, sort of bringing the reality home, which was that uh, Arsenal is a belief system, which is uh, which is not English. Um, you know, the club was formed in England, but, you know, Arsenal is a philosophy, um, which um, was probably the most European Union-ish, the, uh, the the Premier League became um, before before Brexit. But they were always 
there were always counter forces, like, for example, Sir Alex Ferguson's Manchester United, yeah. uh, which, uh, which which made it so different. Mm. Benjamin, we could we could talk <laughs> forever, um, and I realise you've got a life to lead, so <laughs> I just wanted to thank you so much. No, it's my pleasure. Such a, a wide-ranging and interesting interview. Uh, I apologise for the sunglasses. It's been a sunny day, but they are prescription. It's really hot here. I can do them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll post them home when you're in Shanghai next. Um, thank you so much for your time, Benjamin. That no, was so interesting. Um, just okay. one prediction before we I'm go. Just show me something. Go on, show me something. Oh, nice. Okay. It's the name of my house. It's called my house is called Villa Park. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> That's perfect. B6. Absolutely lovely. Uh, there's that sign, isn't there? There's that very modest little sign as you come out of um, Aston Station, which tells you that Villa Park uh, is turned left, but the station is from a vaunted third floor position. But you, you know, you, you can see it if you're yeah. if you if you've got good eyesight. It's not difficult to see. Um, now. Just one final request, Benjamin, which is that, you know, being the avid villa historians that we are, we know that when we finish 17... I, no, I would never call myself a villa historian. <laughs> well, you know, you've got, you've got a continuous memory. That's what I mean. You know, someone who's been there uh, and seen the villa. And I, I always remember that whenever we finish 17th, and it's happened quite a lot, fourth bottom mm. in the Premier League, we always bounce back because we're like the club of miracles. Um, we finished second once the year after finishing 17th. We finished seventh. We made great progress. After finishing 16th, we finished fourth under Ron Saunders. And I've got this little feeling that we might jump 10 rock and roll places next season to be in the top half of the table to compete with Wolves as the West Midlands top club. Mm -hmm. Benjamin, prediction for our finish next season. Well, I'm not giving you a straightforward answer because <laughs> I think I think a lot depends on Jack staying, and a lot depends on getting people to work with him. I think we've relied on him too much. Yeah, you see, I'm making the assumption that he is going to stay. If you make the assumption he's going to stay, and we can get someone to work with him, I see us in the middle of the table. Yeah, in the middle of the table. Um, I think you know we're we're kind of in a positive place at the moment, and you've just got to keep that momentum going. And I think Dean is really doing well, um, and he's got Villa in his blood. Um, and so I just think that yeah, if, if we can keep Jack and Get him some nice company up front so we're not so reliant on him. I can see us in, in, in the middle table. And if we go to middle table, do we call it next season or this season? Yeah, yeah good question. Um, <laughs> we're all very mixed up now, you know, time and space kind of thing. But um, <laughs> uh, if we do that next season, and I don't see any reason why we don't even go higher the season afterwards. The season I love after it. I love it. I'm glad I asked the question, Benjamin. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right, take care, Rebecca.
look after yourself. And I, I hope this is the first of a few conversations and the one day that we get a chance to meet as well. Cool. Take care. Thank you, Benjamin. All right. That was amazing. The official Aston Villa Supporters Trust. Star guests, players, famous fans. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.